Well, this morning we come to our last study in 1 Timothy, a letter written by Paul to Timothy after leaving him alone in the great city of Ephesus with the challenging, demanding, and even dangerous responsibility of being an apostolic representative. If you've ever been left alone with great responsibility and hardly anyone to lean on, you know how Timothy must have felt. The entire letter was therefore written to encourage him as well as to outline his responsibilities and to give him specific instructions. And Paul's closing remarks are a perfect blend of encouragement and instruction. He begins by addressing Timothy as a man of God, which in and of itself would bolster anyone's self-image. To be called a man of God by an apostle is no small thing. The Old Testament calls Moses, Elijah, and Samuel men of God. And to be cast in league with them would be encouraging indeed. And simply being reminded that he was a man of God would give Timothy the confidence that he needed. You know, even though he was a man and as such was bound to make mistakes, he was a man indwelt by God. He had an inner strength that went far beyond his own resources. He had someone within who could do through him what he could never do by himself. He had God within. He wasn't alone. I'm certain he found great encouragement in that, as should we. You know, when we're feeling frustrated, when we feel like our back's against the wall, when we're tempted to give up, we need to remember that we are men and women of God. We've given ourselves to him and asked him to live his life through us. And he will if we let him. But letting him work through us isn't entirely a passive thing. It requires action on our part as it did for Timothy. And Paul therefore blends into his message of encouragement six things Timothy had to do if he was to succeed as a man of God. Six things that are vital for us as well. The first thing Paul told Timothy to do as a man of God, however, might seem a little strange because Paul begins by telling Timothy to flee. <laughs> but flee from these things, you man of God. The first admonition to anyone who would be a man or woman of God is to flee certain things. Now elsewhere, he tells us to flee immorality, idolatry, and youthful lust. Here he says, flee from these things. And what are these things? Well, the things he's been talking about. Things related to the love of money. 
A man of God must flee from getting caught up in things. He must flee from the foolish and harmful desires that ride on the coattails of a desire for riches. He must flee from thinking that godliness is a means of gain, and in striving for gain gets entangled in controversial questions and disputes about words that lead to envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction. He must flee from a desire for power and prestige. He's not to dominate others or intimidate them, but to serve them. He's to flee from the things the world says he should pursue if he's to be a success. And instead, pursue the things Paul sets out before him in the last half of this verse. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You know, while we are to flee some things, our life is not to be characterized by running away, but running toward. We flee from things that entrap and bring ruin only to pursue the things that bring freedom and victory. We set our sights on the qualities God would have demonstrated in those who are indwelt by him. And the first thing we pursue is righteousness. Now, there are two different aspects of righteousness that are no doubt in view here. The first has to do with our being counted as righteous. And we know that our righteous standing before God doesn't come from what we do. It's not a matter of piling up more good works than bad on some celestial balance. It's a matter of allowing ourselves to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. So we pursue God and allow him to make us righteous with a righteousness we can't pursue in and of itself, a righteousness that comes only from pursuing God. The second aspect of righteousness, however, is something we can directly pursue. It's the constant pursuit to do what is right. It's a conscious desire to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit within and a commitment to utilize the power he gives to live a life consistent with our profession. It's wanting to do what is right in God's eyes and what honest, godly men see as being right. We pursue what God declares to be righteous. We hunger and thirst after it, as Jesus said. And then closely related to righteousness is godliness or god Likeness. Not only do we want to be right, we want to be godly. We want the God who indwells our hearts to be seen in our face. So we learn all we can about his character. And we commit ourselves to a course of action that will reproduce that character 
in our lives. Then we pursue faith. Now, I don't think he's talking about trying to get more faith. Jesus said if we have faith as a mustard seed, we can move mountains. So he's not talking about a quantity of faith, but a quality of faith. And the quality of faith is determined by what we have faith in. Having faith in an unreliable aircraft does not make it fly. We pursue faith by entrusting ourselves to someone who is utterly trustworthy. We pursue faith by committing ourselves to a loving God and trusting that he will take care of our needs and use us in ways that will benefit him and his kingdom. And we learn to trust him by getting into the scriptures because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We learn of his faithfulness in the past by reading his word and then we entrust ourselves to the God who never changes. That's how we pursue faith. Then we pursue love. We seek to act in a loving manner, something that's not particularly romantic, but very practical. We put the needs of others above our own. We seek to treat others as Christ has treated us. That's the key to pursuing love. It's allowing ourselves to be loved by God so we can be a channel of his love to others. We pursue love by getting so close to God that we feel his love surrounding us. And then we draw others into that circle of love. Next, Paul says, a man or woman of God will pursue perseverance. They'll seek to develop a stick to that won't give up. And again, this comes from developing confidence in our Lord. If you know he's in control, that he knows your limits, and that he won't let you be pushed beyond what you can handle, you can persevere. You can endure because he's with you, and through him, victory is guaranteed. All you need to do is keep your eyes on the victory and not be blinded by the temporary struggles you're facing. That's how you pursue perseverance. It's not by saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's by saying, I know he can. I know he can. I know he can. Lastly, he says we should pursue gentleness or meekness and meekness is often a misunderstood characteristic we equate meekness with weakness but that's not what's pictured here the word was used by the greeks to describe a horse that had all of its spirit but was under control a stallion that children could ride that's what it means to be meek it means to be perfectly controlled Meekness or gentleness 
comes by yielding to Christ's lordship, by giving him the reins of our life. That's how we pursue gentleness. Now, all of that is not to say that a man of God will never fight. <laughs> For the next admonition Paul gives to Timothy is to fight. To fight the good fight of faith. Now, whether this is a military term or an athletic term, we can't be sure. But either way, the idea is to contend, to face the conflict, and to even take the offensive if needed. In fleeing from an argumentative, argumentative spirit and pursuing Christ-like qualities, we're not to overlook the fact that there is, as Frankie Schaefer pointed out years ago, a time for anger. And a man or woman of God must be willing to get into the battle for truth. Frankie's book exposed what he called the myth of neutrality in the media, in law, in politics, in science, in medicine, and in sexual standards. He pointed out that a world that proposes neutrality and claims to have achieved a liberal acceptance of everyone and everything in a pluralistic society has its neutrality shattered when it runs into the absolutes of God. Everything can't be okay if God has established absolutes. And we have to be willing to stand and fight when God's absolutes are challenged or ignored. A man of God must be willing to fight the good fight of faith. And to do so, he must take hold of something eternal. Continuing on. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Paul is not suggesting here that Timothy didn't possess the promise of eternal life. He's simply saying, get such a grip on your standing before God that you'll never let anything shake you. You'll never let go of the hope you have in Christ. Remember the good confession you made when you publicly acknowledged Christ as Lord of your life and cling to that above everything else. Remember, you are a possessor of eternal life. The promise is yours for the future and the promise is yours for today. You have eternal life even now, so act like it. Live like it. Hold on to it. And find strength in it. And then, to help him hold on to it and to encourage him to live out his confession, Paul sets before Timothy a picture of the Lord he confessed and the commandment he is to keep. Verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God, 
who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In charging Timothy to keep the commandment, Paul focuses his eyes on the King of kings and Lord of lords. He charges him in the presence of God, the giver of life, and Christ Jesus to keep the commandment. Now, what commandment is he talking about? Since Jesus rolled all the commandments into loving God and loving our neighbor, I have to assume that's what Paul has in mind here. It's the commandment to be all Christ would have us be in our relationship with God and man. It's the command to live out our faith in everyday life. And the way we do that is to keep our eyes on the Lord, to remember that he is there, and to remember that the same Jesus who stood before Pilate and faced the consequences of confessing that he was indeed the king of God's people, is watching to see how we will handle the consequences of confessing him to be king of our life. And not only that, we must never forget that he's coming back as Savior for those who through the strength supplied keep his commandment, and as judge for those who deny him and his power by their disobedience. And then as Paul's mind focuses on the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's led into a doxology of the highest praise, giving us a glimpse as to how he viewed his Lord. He saw him as the blessed and only sovereign, the one in control of everything, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one over everything, as the one who alone possesses immortality, the source of our eternal life, as the one who dwells in such glory that no man can even look upon him, as the one who reigns in honor forever, ever. When we share Paul's vision of God and reject the contemporary view of God as an old man in a heavenly rocking chair who wrings his hands and mutters, my, my, we'll find the motivation to keep true to him in everything. We'll long to be counted by all as men and women of God. Paul's final word to Timothy is found in the final two verses, where he warns Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him. O Timothy, 
Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. As a man would guard a treasure deposited with him for safekeeping, so must Timothy and any man or woman of God guard the truth that has been entrusted to them. And we must be constantly on guard because there are many in the world who will try to loosen our grip on the truth, who will try to convince us that our faith is archaic, that belief in a God of absolutes is outdated and unnecessary in this advanced intellectual society of ours. They'll try to overwhelm us with their circular reasoning and their endless recitation of the facts as they see them. They'll do everything they can to break down our commitment to the truth as revealed in Christ. But if we'll flee, when it's time to flee, pursue the things God would have us pursue, fight when it's time to take a stand, get a grip on eternal life now, and then keeping our eyes on the King of kings and Lord of lords, find the strength to obey him without question, we will truly be men and women of God. So, are you a man of God today? Are you a woman of God? Now, I've tried to be inclusive this morning by applying Paul's words to Timothy, a man of God, to women as well. But Paul's letter to his son in the faith is in reality a clarion call for men to rise up. To rise up to the challenge of headship in the church and in the home. An old hymn came to mind as I was working on this message. Rise up, O men of God. When I tried to find it in our hymnal, I discovered it had been changed to rise up, O church of God. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. But as Paul challenged Timothy to be a man of God, I want to conclude by challenging men in particular to rise up. And in our gender-confused society, I think there's a real need for men and women to stand together and unabashedly sing, Rise up, O men of God. Let's stand.